The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Bear Blends. Bear Blends are dedicated to producing the healthiest protein powders and unique nutritional powders. They use only natural and organic whole foods and all of their products are non-GMO and free of artificial flavors, colors and sweeteners. My personal new favorite is their vanilla and coconut plant protein. Visit bearblends.com.au to learn more and check out their gorgeous recipe inspo over on Instagram at bearblends. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast, and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, we explore dysbiosis and how to create balance in your internal ecosystem. We teach you how to develop an appropriate gut health strategy, including food, probiotics, prebiotics, resistant starch, and if and when supplements are required. We explore testing, parasites, undergrowths of beneficial bacterial strains, pathogenic bacterial overgrowths, and increased intestinal permeability. You will learn about parasites, the importance of treating parasites in conjunction with biofilm, and why we must separate normal from common. We cover symptoms including poor sleep quality, poor training recovery, constipation, diarrhea, impaired cognitive function, mental health challenges, behavioral issues, and so much more. Hello. So today's episode of The Real Food Real is all about gut health, a topic that you, our listeners, are certainly not unfamiliar with. There's lots of discussion these days about gut health or ill gut health, as the case often is, Um, but I'm pretty sure you guys are aware of the fact that this now goes beyond just the obvious symptoms of things like bloating and constipation. And in fact, our gut health goes a long way to impacting our immunity, our hormone balance, our brain function, and as athletes, our ability to recover from training and exercise. Thank God science has evolved to the point where we can now start to detect the presence or absence of what bacteria or pathogens are living in our gut that contribute to the dysbiosis um, that we see manifesting in those sorts of symptoms that I've just mentioned. So Steph, let's get straight into it and talk about what does dysbiosis mean? I'm glad you asked that question because it sounds like quite a deep, detailed word, but I personally just think of it as being a, an imbalance in our internal ecosystem. 
So technically, our microbiome should be like a beautiful, flourishing rainforest. But unfortunately, for lots of reasons that we'll uncover today, it's become quite barren. And dysbiosis can look quite different in the individual, but some really common examples might be the presence of parasites. So that would be defined as dysbiosis. Then we see things like undergrowths of our common bacterial strains like lactobacillus or bifidobacterium. There might be a case of increased intestinal permeability, uh, a term that's used to define leaky gut, which a lot of our listeners are also familiar with. So yeah, it can look quite different from the individual. Um, It can manifest in very different symptoms, but ultimately the goal for our health and certainly our longevity is to create balance in that internal ecosystem. Mm. Um, Now we use a testing clinic called Bioscreen. Um, which we utilise because it does give us that really beautiful picture of just what is living in somebody's gut or what bacteria is living in somebody's gut and also allows us to understand if there are any pathogens or parasites living there. Um, So how important is it that we look or detect for parasites rather than just what bacteria is living in the gut? Yeah, really great place to start from a testing point of view because Biscreen, you know, probably to take a little step back for a moment, Biscreen have the the fecal microbial analysis or the FMA, then they have the parasite testing by PCR, which is the detect and detection method. And um, when I first work with a client, I definitely start with both tests because identifying a parasite is my number one goal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's definitely the presence of the parasite in of itself. Um, but it's also the flow-on effect that that creates to the entire rainforest. So mm. clients that might have started with a maybe a more, you know, Western approach may have heard that parasites are, um, they're normal, everyone's got them, they're not harmful or something similar to that. And, you know, firstly, I, I believe that to be incorrect. But secondly, what we, I'd say, always see is quite a significant flow on effect as to the entire rainforest. So we know that parasites create this phenomenon of crowding out. So in my mind, I visualize a house and the parasite are the squatters. So they've taken over all the rooms of the house. So there's no rooms left for our bacterial strains like lactobacilli or bifidobacteria to live inside the house. And that creates a whole host of problems. We also know that your parasites are pretty greedy. They essentially steal your nutrients so they can thrive at the expense of the host, the human. So it can manifest in nutrient deficiencies that we see in a blood test review, which we would also do with a client um, at the natural nutritionist. So it's, you know, it's a big topic and there's certainly a number of ways you can treat a parasite, um, but it definitely needs to be addressed. So I don't like that that conversation around them being normal and that and that being okay, mm. especially because often in that initial conversation, parasites are the only thing that's been tested, so they haven't been able to capture that, those flow-on effects that I've been mentioning, which you know is a cause of of ill health, as you say. Mm. 
I think, I think we have to remember that there is a difference between normal and common. Mm. Like parasites are relatively common. You and I see them quite frequently in clinic, but that doesn't mean that they're normal. I agree. Absolutely. So this is to always be treated and managed for. Yeah, absolutely. And like, let's talk about the treatment. Um, you know, obviously today we're not going to give like treatment protocols because no. it needs to be spoken about in context to the individual. Um, but you know, there are there are doctors that are you know are you know a more conventional doctor, so we would call that Western medicine. Um, there are definitely options to treat parasites that way. Um, we generally prefer to do more of an eastern approach so um anti-parasitic herbs and um certainly some biofilm release which i'll explain in a moment um but i've also seen amazing success when east meets west mm-hmm. so ultimately that decision on how you would treat this is is always multifactorial um and it will come back to you know where you're at and your personal decisions around that mm-hmm. um but you know they they can be um, they can be treated and then it creates space or you know room in that house to really address what else is going on with that that total picture of dysbiosis. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that it's it's not enough for us simply to go to the GP and um, get a fecal PCR that may, might detect parasites? treat that parasitic overgrowth and then move on? That's exactly what I'm saying because we know that parasites are very clever, um, including, you know, bacteria in our gut. They basically collect together as a bit of a gang and they build a fence around them known as a biofilm. And that biofilm is very strong like a shield that protects them from treatments like antibiotics and even from antiparasitic herbs. So if you've been treated with only antibiotics, unfortunately it's highly likely that it won't be a long-term solution. Um, Parasites also have a life cycle and they lay eggs with the moon. So we often see false negatives if the blood test was done at the wrong time of of the cycle, maybe when there were only a small amount of eggs rather than adult parasites. Hopefully you're not eating breakfast. I apologise if you are. Um, but biofilms need to be addressed as well. So, you know, that's where it is going to be looking at Western and Eastern um, as well as looking at, you know, can there be some complementary herbs as well? To support that. Yeah, what I will say is that, you know, parasites can also be treated with antibiotics that are absorbed in the small intestine. So there's a a few strains that, you know, your doctor will need to um, be in charge of recommending to you, but they are 99% absorbed in the small intestine. So what that means is the bacteria in the large intestine remain largely unchanged. And that's really important because antibiotics have copped a bad rap. And in lots of cases, rightly so, because there are many types of antibiotics that completely wipe out all the bacteria. And for a lot of people, that's the catalyst to their dysbiosis if they look back in time. Um, But before I get too far down or on top of my (laughs) soapbox, um, I want to be really clear that, you know, antibiotics do have their place. And of course, they're life-saving in many situations, do not get me wrong. Um, But there are better types when we're looking at 
you know, it would be a little bit ironic to treat dysbiosis with this napalm of an antibiotic that wiped out any of the bacteria that was actually in there in the first place. So keep that in mind and you'd obviously need to work with your, um, with probably a functional GP if that was the route that you were going down. Um, but don't forget your biofilm release as well. Well, you know, my own experience um, has you know, proven that the Eastern route does work when it comes to getting rid of certain parasites. And and certainly our experience in clinic is testament to the fact that we can get rid of certain parasites with that um, more natural Eastern approach as well. Um, So when I first did my first, my, my first bioscreen test, um, I had a couple of parasites Mm -hmm. that were detected. um, One of which that I very thankfully was able to get, um, to get rid of with the natural approach and one of which I haven't. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about going down that east meets west approach to, to treat the second parasite that's still living there. Yeah, and a lot of people that we work with are quite similar to you. Mm-hmm. Like we, I usually present all options um, in context, of course, and ma- the majority of people are like, no, like I'd really like to try the natural route and for some people... Um, that is either not as successful or it might take a little bit too long in their eyes. And that's okay. I think there's always so many things going on. As I said, as I always say, you know, health is extremely multifactorial. So yeah, there is a time and a place. Um, and as long as you've got the skills and the knowledge to support yourself during that time, where there is the the role of Western medicine, then I think it can can create some really positive results. Mm. I mean, I think you also have to think about uh, think about the timelines involved. You know, um, it's always nice to be able to go down that more natural route and treat parasites naturally. But then, if there are certain milestones that need to be met, like if somebody wants to, um, you know, start trying for a baby, or if they're starting to experience severe nutrition, nutritional deficiencies because they haven't yet overcome the parasite, then you have to sort of weigh up the options and look at whether it's better to to treat the parasite in a more time efficient manager manage time efficient method so that you can start to get to those those next points yeah for sure Mm -hmm. and there's going to be more involved you know one of the strains that we'll talk about today um bacteroides they definitely determine your robustness and your ability to respond to treatment so you you need to look at the full picture which is why the bioscreen fma the fecal microbial analysis is so great because it's so comprehensive so you've obviously identified a parasite but then you know what else is going on and when you put those together it does allow you to determine what the best protocol is for the individual as well as their symptoms you know i can see two very similar bioscreen results side by side and they can manifest completely um, differently in the individual um, so you've got to look at the symptoms as well because ultimately it comes down to how that level of dysbiosis is impacting the individual like it still needs to be treated right um but some people um i guess they're probably a little bit more sensitive to treatment or yeah like you said they've got goals and a timeline so i think yeah again working with a practitioner is really important because you'll be able to have these conversations and and decide what is best for, for you and with the ultimate aim regardless of the timeline is to um correct that dysbiosis mm. 
So I've got a question for you on the BioScreen results, Steph. I think, um, you know, a lot of us listen to the ads and um, the commercials around probiotics. Um, and if you took that as your only source of information, then you might think that there's only two bacterial strains living in our gut, mm. lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. But we know that's not the case. So paint a little bit of a picture for those people listening as to how this information is presented in a bioscreen report what like what do we see what strains do we see yeah definitely um so bioscreen will the report is detecting what's being picked up from the stool test so it doesn't give you a list of all the strains it looks at the most common strains that we obviously um, know about you know in terms of the scientific evolution um, but it will definitely detect um, strains that are also um, too high in their numbers so there's sort of two parts to an FMA a fecal microbial analysis we look at the aerobic bacteria so we'll always look at the levels of E. coli we'll see enterococcus and streptococcus and then there are yeasts and there may or may not be other aerobes. An example of those are things like Lactococcus lactis or um, Cornibacterium, for example, and that will depend on what's in the individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side of the coin are the anaerobic bacteria. So that's the Bacteroides, but that's also the ones we're really commonly um, familiar with, like Lactobacilli, Bifidobacterium, um, and then we look at... Um, new bacterium as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so in my initial bio screen test that i got done um, my bacteroides count was incredibly low mm. uh, what usually leads to low bacteroides yeah there's there's a number of factors but i think we have to probably turn that question upside down and look at how bacteroides um thrive what they feed off like what's their fuel source Mm -hmm. so we know that bacteroides thrive on a diet that is rich in foods like grass-fed meats free-range eggs organ meats um you can get some from from plant proteins but bacteroides love broth as well so it, you know, the, the vast majority of the foods are animal-based. Mm. So with your timeline, mm. there was obviously a few, a few light bulb moments that went on. Absolutely. I made some huge changes to my diet after receiving my first round of bio-screen test results. Um, as you will know, I, I lived off a predominantly plant-based diet for many years before getting my initial bio-screen test results. And it was that lack in bacteroides that I saw in that first test that really inspired me to um, more strategically use animal products in my diet. And when I say strategically, include those products that I knew would have an impact on my foundational bacterial strains like bacteroides. Mm. So I started including things like bone broth, Mm. um, again, in my diet. When I first had it, I didn't love it like a lot of people and like a lot of my clients, Mm. but I do think of it as a true superfood. And so um, it's now, it's now got a stable place in my diet. Yeah. And it it is going to be the, I think probably sitting next to organ meats, a big bang for your buck in terms of how to really correct the low levels of bacteroides. Um, Yeah. Unfortunately, those foods are usually the most polarizing foods and they're not something I would suggest first. In fact, they're usually the last addition to a real food plate just from my experience in how people 
um, respond to them. But the goal of the bacteroides is like a really high distribution. I'm talking like 90 to 95% and the diversity is king there as well. So we want to see five strains and, you know, the difference between having two strains of bacteroides and five is night and day. Like it is, yeah, in terms of symptoms like fatigue or pain or problems with sleep, um, mental health challenges like mood and anxiety, digestive challenges, your immune system, um, even your cognitive capacity, like that's so, yeah, like I said, night and day. So your experience is actually not dissimilar. I mean, you went from a distribution of, say, 46 and a bit mm, up mm. to 100. So that's double, if my maths is correct. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, we've got to acknowledge the importance of that. And I've had lots of clients do the same as you, Ellie, where, you know, I would never interfere with someone's sort of ethical dietary preference it's their decision to make. But I also really respect when someone makes the decision to include things like broth because they know it's going to form a huge part of their health improvements and it's not a pill. It's a food and that's what we want to try and do. We, you know, the time and a place for supplements and treating dysbiosis often does involve some pills and potions. But when we're talking about the bacteroides, which should basically form the bulk of your microbiome, the fact that they thrive on broth is to me a bit of a no-brainer as to what you need to do or what decisions you need to make if your test comes back as limited species distribution. Mm. Well, that was certainly the decision process that I went through. Um, It it wasn't just with regards to bacteroides, but um, in terms of other nutrient deficiencies, you can either get them in in a pill or a bottle or you can, you can start, choosing the food that you eat um, more precisely or being a little bit more wise about what you eat. Um, and that's what, that's what I did. Yeah, and for people that feel a little bit uncomfortable about that, you don't need to look at it as being a forever thing. Like I think if you break things down into chunks in your mind, it can help it seem a little bit more achievable. Um, dysbiosis is always a case of the chicken or the egg. You know, you can definitely look back in time and answer the statement, I've never been the same since, you know, finish the sentence. But you you can never quite ascertain when it started or what came first. So, you know, did you always have low bacteroides and is that why you were susceptible to a parasite? Or did you, you know, get a parasite and then that crowded out your bacteroides. So we won't actually know that answer, but you know, that's also why in an ideal world we repeat your bioscreen in six monthly intervals. So you know the impact of the dietary and supplemental changes and then obviously you can, can continue to reassess things. It's not necessarily a forever thing. Mm. Bacteroides love K2, so vitamin K2 can be taken in a supplement and some people might feel a lot more comfortable starting there. But ultimately, then that's like, okay, well, your decision is that you're going to take a pill over a food and I'm cool with that, Mm. but you've got to be presented with all the facts as well. Mm. So low levels of, um, sorry, low levels of bacteroides, which is, you know, essentially the, the foundational bacteria living in our gut. When we've got low levels, it does leave us more susceptible to overgrowth of other bacteria taking place. 
um, which we certainly saw in my first round of bioscreen testing when I did have very low levels of bacteroides. What are the common overgrowths that you see in practice? Overgrowth, absolutely. So I'd say high on the list is definitely streptococcus. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually what we call a commensal bacteria, which means it is a bacteria that has really important roles in the microbiome, but it is a Goldilocks scenario. So not too little and not too much. And overgrowths are really interesting because they can definitely manifest in quite, you know, th- those lists of common symptoms, you know, obvious digestive symptoms like the bloating or changes in bowel movements, but then we see symptoms like brain fog, you know, and brain fog is too often not linked back to gut health, although we are seeing some really really positive changes in the research of late. I still think that we've got to acknowledge that bacteria when they're pathogenic in overgrowth um, are firstly going to be a huge stress for the body, Mm. and we know that, Stress is a really big trigger for that increased intestinal permeability. So it starts to create the holes in the tight junctions or that leaky gut term that you're probably familiar with. And that stress is this cascade of, you know, essentially inflammation. And then we also know that streptococcus, when they are dying, will release endotoxins and the endotoxins go into the bloodstream and cross the blood brain barrier and then the brain fog continues so it's one of those symptoms that we definitely um link back to gut health um multifactorial as always but really important that we connect the dots there and part of our conversation today is definitely for you guys like obviously there's at ellie's results and more of a general conversation around what we see but i want you to really connect with some of the symptoms that we're talking about because you know as we've covered on the show before often real food is not enough it's by far the platform and the building blocks of health but if you're having these daily symptoms you've got to dig deeper you've got to test your gut Um, What else do we see with streptococcus? It's common with mental health challenges like depression, anxiety, and OCD. So for me, I find that really fascinating when we look at the fairly new research with the gut-brain access and the relationship between the gut and the um, brain via the vagus nerve. And we know the model around mental health is, um, is changing but still very slow in its prescription. So all disease starts in the gut. So especially if it's mental health conditions, again, you've got to go deeper and have a look at if there is an imbalance that's perpetuating some of these symptoms. Mm. There's also some literature to show that streptococcus overgrowth can impact on quality of sleep Mm. um, and that treating strep overgrowth can uh, start to benefit quality of sleep. Certainly it's not the only bacterial strain that we see implicated in sleep quality though. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, that's an interesting conversation in itself because strep and E. coli work in a seesaw, right? So high streptococcus can definitely impair with impair your sleep, but high streptococcus will very often be paired with low E. coli. And we know E. coli produces melatonin, your sleep hormone. So what happens if you have low E. coli, you have low melatonin, and you just don't sleep? So what happens if you don't sleep? Well, it is 
totally systemic and it can be things like, you know, fat loss resistance because the research around the seven to eight hours of sleep from an appetite control and craving management point of view and fat burning capacity is huge. Then we see things like lean and lowered exercise recovery, you know, again, cravings. If you're tired, you're not really going to feel like broccoli and quality proteins. You're going to want sugars and carbohydrates that are immediately available for energy. Um, Sleep interferes with your cognitive capacity and so on and so forth. So poor sleep is often treated at the surface level and people are prescribed, you know, Valium or Stilnox or, you know, maybe they're even told to have chamomile tea, which would obviously be my preference of those three, Um, but it's still not root cause driven. So, you know, if you're having real challenges with your sleep and certainly you've addressed your sleep hygiene, you've been doing your, you know, your mindfulness or your meditation before bed and you're off social media and you've changed the temperature of your room and all the things that we teach you around sleep hygiene, if that's not enough, then, you know, again, dive deeper. Mm-hmm. Coming back to that chicken and egg scenario that you mentioned before, that's the, I guess, the really tricky thing when it comes to treating the symptom rather than the underlying cause is because we know that the use of Western medicine or the use of pharmaceuticals, I should say, really does um, intensify your susceptibility to dysbiosis. Mm. So we know that the thing, you know, the use of things like, Proton pump inhibitors, which is so commonly used to treat heartburn and gastritis, mm. yeah, will impact on dysbiosis. Uh, we know that the use of um, the oral contraceptive pill will impact your risk for dysbiosis. So it's just unfortunate that treating the, the, the symptom, unfortunately, will increase your risk of that root cause. Yeah, and and the conversation around pharmaceuticals needs to be discussed because, you know, like we know I mentioned with antibiotics, like there's this really important role of Western medicine, but the overprescription as well as the lack of education around the side effects is what is where the problem is because, you know, if you're taking a proton pump inhibitor for reflux or heartburn, then you're never going to solve that issue. I mean, Mm. this is probably a little bit of a segue, but we know that things like reflux and heartburn heartburn are actually caused by poor stomach acid. So you don't have enough acid to break down your food so it travels back up your esophagus. Yet when you take a PPI, a proton pump inhibitor, the the model, the theory is it's caused by high stomach stomach acid. So Mm. it is essentially suppressing already low stomach acid and basically you have to take that prescription forever and you have to take more and then you have all the side effects like nutrient deficiencies and the the die off of any of the beneficial bacteria and it's you know it's a life sentence so it's horrendous i think that that conversation is one i'm really passionate about having with my clients so the awareness around the model of reflux and the impact of protein pump inhibitors is, you know, is huge. That might not apply to you directly, but I bet you know someone that's on SOMAC or something similar. Mm. Oh, yeah, and it's a conversation that I'm very passionate about as well because I was on proton pump inhibitors for many, many years. Like we're talking 10 years ago now, but I wish that I had access to this information 10 years ago. And I studied nutrition 10 years ago. It wasn't even discussed then. No, we've come a long way, which is awesome. You definitely have. 
But I wanted to circle back to E. coli with the connection around mental health because this is a really cool area of, of gut health. Um, so E. coli actually produces our neurotransmitters. So it pre- produces the precursors of dopamine and that's, you know, basically a big part of the equation to support our mood and, you know, regulate regulating our neurotransmitters is everything when it comes to happiness. So E. coli needs to be in adequate amounts for us to produce these neurotransmitters and these precursors to dopamine and and serotonin, in fact. Mm. So that directly relates to how we feel, um, but it also relates to our gut motility. So um, low E. coli is a huge concern from a constipation point of view. Mm-hmm. So treating constipation or especially long-term chronic constipation is often very successfully treated with the prescription of E. coli. Now, that can't be done via food, unfortunately. Um, it's a specific probiotic that you can get in a capsule. Yeah, and that's why it's important to to think about and consider this testing because there, there could be underlying factors that um, you, you just wouldn't know about, like low E. coli levels, which you can't necessarily... Um, counteract with a food but also you don't want to be supplementing with a, a product like Butaflor which is um, rich in E. coli strains without knowing exactly what's going on in your gut. Yeah I would hope it would never be prescribed without a bioscreen although I wouldn't be surprised. Constipation is obviously multifactorial mm-hmm. um, but you know, my hope is that we don't neglect the basics. Like there are lots of things that need to be done first, including obviously your natural fibre intake, um, avoiding those really fake fibres like Metamucil, which Mm. just do the opposite, Mm. you know, hydration, stress management. Like there's a lot you've got to do first. Um, But, yeah, we've got to identify if low E. coli is part of the problem so you can treat it effectively. Mm. It's a journey though. We know that one can take unfortunately, a couple of years. Um, but you can do a lot with the food that you eat as well. Like you can definitely avoid sugars. You can, you know, consume beautiful natural fibres. Um, even um, fruits like figs are really great to promote natural E. coli. And we obviously don't eat like a lot of fruit, but um, a fig for, you know, in season would be an awesome um, food to look at as well. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. So we know that low E. coli levels will allow space for things like streptococcus to grow. We also know that it will allow other lactic acid-producing bacteria like enterococcus to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, we picked up one in my follow-up bio screen, um, Lactococcus lactis. I think that's how you produce it. Um, is that one that you see regularly in athletes or your clients, Steph? It's definitely not as common as the strep or enterococcus, um, but it, you know this conversation can be, I guess, can connect the three because they are the lactic acid producing, um, essentially, their infections when their when their levels are too high. A few things to think about here. I mean, most people are familiar with lactic acid, especially our athletes. We've yeah. got this capacity to clear lactate, which is really significant. Um, when we are performing at a high intensity, but a, a huge part of the recovery. So we've got to clear that lactic acid so that we can 
recover and get back out there for our next session. So if you're having trouble with recovery, if there's, you know, a potential that you've got high levels of these lactic acid producing bacteria, what they also do is completely change the pH of your gut. So they make your gut quite acidic and the beautiful bacteroides and lactobacilli and bifidobacteria don't like acidity. They like, you know, neutral. Mm. Um, And then the pancreatic enzymes are impaired in an acidic environment as well. Mm. So you start to lose your capacity to break down certain foods and it can actually contribute to that permeability, that leaky gut. Mm. And then it's that that vicious cascade of inflammation and longer-term problems. So. You know, I think it's an important conversation. Um, the there there is some research that goes a little bit deeper, like sort of beyond athletes around um, the problem with the D lactic acid, which is produced by these bacteria. Mm-hmm. It can impact also your um, mitochondria, and it's often linked with children that have have autism or even um, chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, circling back around to our athletes, we know that we need mitochondria to produce our aerobic energy and to be able to burn fat for fuel. Um, so, yeah, it's a pretty big area to explore, really. It's a huge area. And that's why you realise that gut health is not just a conversation around bloating and constipation. Mm. You know, that's, it's when you start talking about things like D-lactic acid, when you realise that it's just fundamental to health in, in mm. so many so many ways. Yeah, and especially we know that, the the D-lactate will also interfere with your production of short-chain fatty acids. Mm. So then there's a whole host of problems with it when a deficiency arises. Um, definitely will interfere with your interfere with your digestion. A lot of people will then still experience constipation, and we're again spinning our wheels. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so it continues. So what else do we see living in there when um, things like E. coli are inhibited? Interesting. So one of we might go into the sort of SIBO realm a little bit here because there are some some bacterial strains that um, are under the arm of Klebsiella or Klebsiella. It's sometimes pronounced. We often see the presence of Kleb um, when there is a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, and we know there's two types of SIBO. Um, there's either a methane dominant or a hydrogen dominant, but the common symptom is the alternating patterns of constipation and diarrhea. So CLEB can definitely be a sign of SIBO. It's not a pure diagnosis from a bioscreen, but it can definitely start to help you connect the dots between your symptoms. Um, We spoke briefly about constipation and that was related more to, you know, E. coli just before, but it's definitely prevalent in SIBO. You know, constipation is is hugely influential on your long-term colon health and it absolutely needs to be addressed and we need, you know, a, a good healthy bowel movement at least once a day. But the alternating pattern between constipation, constipation and diarrhea is actually far more concerning. You know, chronic diarrhea where it's that complete evacuation mm-hmm is actually far more dangerous than constipation because it leads to long-term nutrient deficiencies. The transit time, the time that your food travels from mouth to anus, 
is so important for the adequate absorption of nutrients. So if your food's flying out the back door, mm. you're just not able to get the nutrients from your food. That's fundamental. That's 101 for everything, energy, you know, training, capacity, longevity. So we've got to really acknowledge that, that especially in that alternating situation, that it's usually an overgrowth in the small intestine. Mm. And this is incredible information to uncover, especially that this conversation around the fluctuation between constipation and diarrhea is because I can imagine there are people out there pulling their hair out, trying to figure out what foods they're reacting to, why they're getting diarrhea. Um, and, you know, we don't want you to get to the point where you're only eating certain foods and, you know, only having five different things in a day. Um, it could very much just be that you've got this bacterial imbalance or bacterial overgrowth, which are leading to that fluctuation between diarrhea and constipation. hundred percent. And the food intolerance conversation is interesting in itself because SIBO can definitely be partly treated with what is the biphasic diet. It's a combination of the low FODMAP diet and the specific carbohydrate diet. You know, we use all of Nerala Jacabi's research um, but it's a treatment protocol, yeah? It's phase one, which is, you know, two to four weeks, and phase two, which is four to six weeks um, or thereabouts. But the the real goal is firstly to acknowledge that food doesn't cause SIBO, so it's not going to fix it. Um, but it does need to be treated initially to remove some of those triggers, to downregulate the inflammation, to help seal up the, the leaky gut. But you know, my goal for all of my audience is that, you know, within reason, we should be able to eat all foods. So yes, maybe initially onions triggering you or you feel like you absolutely can't eat apples and pears or whatever it might be. I'm cool with that initially, but you know, a good sign of your gut rebuilding success is when you can tolerate foods that you never could. And that to me is the goal because I've met too many people that end up on one or two foods, like I'm exaggerating, literally that's all they could eat because they just kept pulling out triggers, pulling out triggers, pulling out triggers, which creates more issues because when you eat only a few foods, you develop an intolerance to those foods by hitting the ceiling or the ceiling effect as we call it. Yeah. So Food intolerances are really significant initially. They, you know, they will perpetuate leaky gut. Um, so they need to be probably an early part of the treatment protocol, but the goal is to evolve the diet as much as possible. You have to evolve the diet because you've got to be able to feed the beneficial bacteria. 100%. You, know, you so, have to have a diet that supports mm. the likes of bacteroides and the likes of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, and, and that's not going to come from a heavily restricted diet. For sure, especially when we acknowledge the prebiotics. So prebiotics are obviously those foods that feed the probiotics, mm. the beneficial bacteria. They're often the ones that are completely eliminated when someone's doing a, lot, a low FODMAP diet long term. Mm. And so, you know, examples of prebiotics are things like, you know, onions, garlics, artichokes, asparagus. And people look at you like, I don't eat those foods. Yeah. Like there's no way I can tolerate those foods. I'll be running to the toilet or, you know, are looking like I'm, you know, six months pregnant. And then even in the keto space, we've spoken yes. about this before, people are cutting out all carbohydrates, so they're starving their bacteria and they're creating dysbiosis by a, like a restrictive dietary approach, mm. which breaks my heart. So, mm. you know, you want to get to the point where you can include those FODMAP veggies in the right amount for you. 
And you definitely want to be including the cooked and cooled sweet potato, potato or, you know, white rice to mm. feed the gut bugs. Mm. I mean, if you're taking a probiotic in a pill form and you are not feeding them with these prebiotics, these resistant starch, then essentially that, that pill form of probiotic is just not going to have the impact that you would desire to have. Correct. It's not going to be feeding that bacteria. Yeah. So the science is pretty clear that there's still a role of those beneficial bacteria to pass through the gastrointestinal tract but there's a huge problem if they're not thriving. Mm. So it's definitely there's no food for them. So if there's no food, they starve. And then it comes back to what we were talking about before with that that pH. So if the pH is too high for whatever reason, they will die. And Bioscreen will, will show you that. Like I meet a lot of people that are way down the gut health path. They're across their bone broth and their fermented veggies and they're taking A, B and C. But then when we do their stool test, they've literally got little or no of the beneficial bacteria. And that can be a huge Mm. shock to people because they've been investing all this time and money and to them it feels like a huge waste of time. And it's not, and you'll never know the impact of what, like, or what would have happened without those foods and supplements. But, I mean, it definitely shows you there's more to the picture than just drinking some kombucha. Oh, there absolutely is. I mean, we've spent part of this discussion talking about my bioscreen mm-hmm. results and I would hate for people to think that um, a less than perfect bioscreen result suggests that you're eating a terrible, you know, standard Australian diet void of any nutrients. That's not the case. There's so many things that, that factor into what bacteria is and isn't living in your gut and and food is one of those things yeah for sure and and stress probably has even more of a significant impact and all of us have like this phd in denial about the impact of stress and i think that that is a, a conversation in of itself because we're we're all you know we've got this to-do list up to our eyeballs and we're all in that sympathetic dominant state we know that digestion starts in the mouth so if you're eating when you're stressed and or not chewing your food, then you've completely bypassed the most important part of digestion and then you wonder why you're bloated. Mm, yeah, like absolutely. Basics, basics 101. Absolutely. And you just mentioned um, psychological stress you're referring to, but we also can't forget that a lot of the people listening high are actually athletes, so putting themselves under physiological stress. And that stress will lead to imbalances as well. Yeah, definitely. And the athlete conversation is interesting. I'm just going to circle back around to our good friend E. coli mm. because long-term use of Panadols or anti-inflammatories, prescriptions from, um, you know, aspirins or whatever it might be, completely destroys your E. coli levels. So that could have been that I've never been the same since. So mm. I've never been the same since I took a whole packet of anti-inflammatories for my knee injury or whatever the, the unique case may be. So I highly encourage you all to answer that question. I've never been the same since. And you can really start to put together a beautiful timeline and, and retrace your steps so that you can rebuild and, and create this, this beautiful internal environment. Mm. Now, I just need to come back to something we were talking about before mm. because I think some people may have had a bit of an aha moment when we were talking about um, prebiotics mm-hmm. and the use of things like cooked and cooled white rice and cooked and cooled sweet potato, how much of that should we be looking to have? So if people are already having their probiotic capsules but on an, LCH, on, on an LCHF protocol and not eating a lot in the way of rice or sweet potato, um, where's a good place to start in terms of how much we should be having? Yeah, I'm glad you rephrased the question because how much we need is how long is a piece of string, yeah. um, but it's really important to be very gradual. Yeah. So especially if you've got that 
predisposition to being sensitive to prebiotics or FODMAPs, um, I would look at a quarter to a half a cup a couple of times a week. Mm -hmm. So super conservative to start, which is my advice in general across the board when we talk about treating dysbiosis. Um, It's why we don't start drinking, you know, bottles of kombucha every day. But I think from a prebiotic point of view, if you looked at adding in, you know, half cup of sweet potato would be my preference even, you know, two to three times a week to start, that would be, yeah, again, a beautiful place to start and like anything we evolve the diet. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the best time to have those is post-training when we'd, we'd usually be having our complex carbohydrates. Yeah, they have a very different role in the body. Um, so they're, they're known as resistant starch. That means they're actually resistant to digestion. They bypass the small intestine and they go direct to the large intestine where they act as food for those bugs. So the insulin response is actually quite low. Mm. So then they're not going to spike your blood sugar like carbohydrates outside of the post-training window will. But for every, like, let's use round numbers for if there was a, a serve that gave you 20 grams of carbohydrates, four or five of those are resistant starch and the rest is carbohydrate. So, yeah, from a fat burning potential, post-training is still a really beneficial time. Um, But lots of people find that the insulin response is actually non-existent for them so they can get away with having it at any time. That's going to come back to things like metabolism, um, level of carbohydrate intolerance, all the factors that we speak about when it comes to carbohydrate prescription. Um, But, yeah, I think N equals one usually, so do a little bit of testing and and see how you go. Okay. I want to talk about yeast. Okay. (laughs) Those of you who can't see us, I've got a smile on my face right now. Um, So yeast came back as something that was higher um, in my second round of bioscreen testing than my first round um, and certainly higher than I expected it would be. What What can lead to that? What can contribute to that? Well, I want to speak to the kombucha conversation, which probably doesn't apply to you, but no. I've definitely seen it in a lot of, um, at least even symptoms when I'm talking to people um, pre-bioscreen because kombuchas are yeast, right? <laughs> so what happens if you drink too much yeast? Like you create an overgrowth. So kombucha was originally designed to be served as shots, like a 30 mil. Um, medicinal approach whereas you know now it's sold in those three 30 mil um, bottles and we drink it in one go like I've learned the hard way if I drink a whole bottle of kombucha I'll be running to the toilet like I get get bloated I feel like you know Mm. people must think I'm actually pregnant and that is a huge sign like that is a massive red flag that you don't need that much of the bacterial strains that are found in that bottle of kombucha Mm. Um, yeast can come from many different areas I mean Again, this doesn't apply to you, but it's a big one for someone that's eating lots of sugar or a highly refined carbohydrate diet, Um, even, you know, alcohol. Like I've shared my story. I had a candida overgrowth when I got back from Europe and I was literally drinking rosé every day, which, you know, I would never do anymore. But, um, yeah, like it's, again, there's a number of different areas. Um, But I think, you know, from that kombucha conversation, that comes back to the being really gradual with your prescription, but also diverse. You know, we don't want to just be looking at kombucha for gut health. We need to be looking at lots of different strains because remember it's a rainforest. Mm. So like we said at the start, 
we want this diverse rainforest. So it needs to be, you know, a little bit of cooked and cool sweet potato, a little bit of kombucha, um, some fermented veggies, and then you want to look for maybe a little bit of cultural wellness or uh, a kefir that you made from scratch at home. And smaller amounts of a larger number of options is definitely the goal. Mm -hmm. So the message here is don't go and smash too much kombucha. Um, but also try and figure out what's living in your gut so you can support the bacteria appropriately rather than stabbing in the dark and potentially exacerbating or contributing to already existing overgrowth. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree. There's so much to it. You know, gut health, I don't even think we've scratched the surface on, you know, what we'll know in another year, let alone in another decade. And that to me is so fascinating. But um as we always say, test, don't guess. And I think, you know, Bioscreen is a beautiful investment to really dive in deeper to your gut health and to develop a really smart strategic plan. So there's no guesswork or unnecessary supplements or accidentally creating overgrowths. You know, I think it's a really smart way to approach things. And, you know, I hope you guys have really appreciated what we've shared with you so far today. Mm. So, Steph, we've talked on sleep quality, we've talked on training recovery, we've talked on constipation and diarrhea, um, we've talked a little bit about um, cognitive function mental and health. mental health um, and brain fog. In my own sort of little moment of brain fog here, are there any typical symptoms that you see in clinic that we haven't talked a lot about? Can we go to the behavioural issues? in children is that too far yeah we can so the connection mm. between um high strep high enterococcus yeah. yeah is that where you want to go yeah i just i mean I, I i just wanted to be really clear that you know i can imagine how challenging it would be to be faced with a particular like diagnosis mm. or to be dealing with behavioral issues but we've got to acknowledge the role of gut health. Like too often when we look deeper, there are se severe deficiencies as well as imbalances that are manifesting in that behavioural issue. Mm. Like hopefully we're acknowledging the impact of sugar and refined carbohydrates on a child's behaviour, but often it can be a parasite or it can be a high streptococcus overgrowth or it's simply the poor little guy has no beneficial bacteria and the flow and effect is they don't know how to converse and explain how they're feeling so they react or they simply can't communicate properly because of the brain fog like who knows really like but i think that it's a sensitive issue um and i don't know that i'm doing it it justice but for me it's just about today planting the seed so that we understand the connection between any kind of condition, ill health, coming back to the gut and, and you having a little bit of knowledge or a little bit of inspiration to dive a bit deeper into the research and explore what might be going on in your world and that maybe you could get a little bit of support and mm. some testing to help everyone and, and you know, to identify the, that root cause. Yeah. I think essentially what you're trying to do is provide parents out there with perhaps a little hope or the support that they need to to think about um, common contributors to behavioural issues that perhaps aren't being discussed with their mm. GP mm. in clinic. 
yeah. So rather than going down the let's medicate route first, mm. let's look at the let's test first mm. route. That would be my hope. As well as being, you know, Viascreen being available on the Medicare system mm. so that we could all get maybe even one a year, I'd be very mm. happy with that. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the obvious one that we haven't really dived into is immune, immune system. Yeah, um, that comes to, you know, the obvious immune situation like always getting sick in winter quote unquote or being that athlete that always gets sick in a taper week or after a race or you know further down the line are the autoimmune conditions like Hashimoto's like celiac disease like MS like you know rheumatoid arthritis you know a lot of them um a lot of the new research are finding origins back into the gut whether it's leaky gut or particular bacterial strains. So personally, if I was looking down the barrel of a diagnosis, I know that I would do anything to learn everything about that particular case rather than just maybe having one opinion or getting one opinion. So again, just today we're planting the seed to hopefully allow you to share the information to, you know, those who it's relevant to in this small section of the conversation because it is a life sentence if you don't dive deeper because all modern medicine has to offer you is medication which comes with a whole host of side effects mm-hmm. and will wipe out the, the bugs. So it's it's a life sentence. So we've got to look at things always coming back to, you know, those symptoms. Any symptom is a flashing light that can't be ignored and it will tell you where to dive in and where your research needs to, to go and, you know, where your testing and, and, and probably resources need to be spent as well. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Mm. So hopefully the discussion we've had today around symptoms and, um, and the correlation back to the gut has got some of our listeners thinking mm. about themselves and what their next steps are when it comes to overcoming some of their obvious or not so obvious signs of less than ideal gut health. Yeah, for sure. And we'll put some more information together about the testing for those of you that want to know more. Um, but we've also got an episode coming up very soon, which is a Q&A gut health episode. Yes. So we would love you to jot down any questions that have come out of today's show or any previous episodes. Send us an email um, via the naturalnutritionist.com.au um, and we can address your questions in a future episode. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you guys. As always, thank you so much, Steph, for your time. Thanks for all of the information on um, all things gut bugs today. Yeah, I loved it. I love this topic. It's such a fascinating area for me. Um, And I hope you guys learn something new and you can spread that love far and wide. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, Before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.
Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.